Welcome to the podcast of the American Psychoanalytic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist, and this is Psychoanalysis and You. My guest today is Elizabeth Lundbeck, a historian of psychoanalysis, psychiatry, and psychology, and who currently serves as professor and chair of the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University. Lundbeck is the author of The Psychiatric Persuasion, Knowledge, Gender, and Power in Modern America. She's the co-author of Family Romance, Family Secrets, and author of The Americanization of Narcissism, as well as the co-editor of four additional volumes. Lundbeck is an academic program graduate of the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute and holds a master's degree in counseling psychology. She teaches courses in the history of psychoanalysis and this semester, a large lecture course in Harvard's program in general education on psychotherapy and the modern self. She is currently writing a book on the talking cure from Freud to TikTok. Welcome. Thank you for joining. Thank you. It's great to be here. There is a lot of conflict about the reputation and future of psychoanalysis in this day and age. It would seem that the way students understand the discipline has great bearing on how psychoanalysis will be viewed as they are the next generation. Can you tell us something about how you teach undergraduate students about psychoanalysis and psychotherapy? So the way I teach is I try and treat psychoanalysis as a live practice and discipline, not as a set of texts. That's one thing I do. Another thing I do is I try and demystify it for students. So I'll talk about my large lecture course. I have 300 students this semester taking a course on psychotherapy. This is a course I've taught several times. This is the largest number of students who have taken it. So that's fascinating. That is that is a large, is that a capped course? I didn't cap it. So as many students could take it as they wanted to, and 300 did. Yeah. So it's a lot of students interested in psychotherapy. Do you think they're trying to have psychotherapy by taking your course? I don't think so. That's my guess. It is taught under the rubric of the, the science, technology, and society. Introduce them to the science of psychotherapy. What does it mean to understand? How do we understand psychotherapy in the world today? Where does it come from? What are the various types of psychotherapy? How do we assess what works, what doesn't work, the efficacy? I want to give them a broad understanding of the phenomenon of psychotherapy. So I demystify psychoanalysis at every step. Psychoanalysis is not some weird, abstruse, dead science. Most people don't know anything about psychoanalysis. They've heard of Freud, but they don't know anything. It's important to say, however, that no student has ever asked me, is psychoanalysis a science, which is a question that seems to really engage psychoanalysts. I'm in the Department of History of Science. The question doesn't come up. To my mind, it's not an interesting question. The question that I'm interested in is, what do psychoanalysts do? What do dynamically trained psychotherapists do? What do CBT-trained therapists do? So I, I want to give them the tools to look at all of the therapies together. So when I talk about psychoanalysis, I try and help students see that they already are thinking analytically in some ways. To my mind, the two most interesting, powerful concepts that a student can take away from psychoanalysis are one, transference, and two, reenactment. 
not what most people would choose, but that's what I would choose. So when I, when I talk about transference, I talk about how we know the other. How do we know the other? I don't talk about transference yet this semester as a tool, but rather as in the way that, that Freud first saw it as, as sort of a filter, the stereotype plate that we bring to every interaction with someone. So that you can see them. Like, oh, that's so you talk about it as a phenomenon. Right. That you can see in everyday life. As opposed to a treatment modality. I, or, I will get to that. I see. But I first I start out with something very, and I use visual imagery of the stereotype plates that Freud talks about when he talks about transference um, and how we bring our past experiences to every encounter. So it's not just in therapy, it's everywhere. So that's like, whoa, yes, um, very powerful. So, so students can come to understand that actually, and this is something I think the public at large doesn't understand, that transference is something we're all doing all, all the, the time. time. Exactly. And it shapes, therefore, so many elements of life at large and societies and cultures. Exactly. And if we recognize that, name it, understand it, try and probe it, we're all going to get along a lot better. Because if we turn it around, people aren't seeing us the way that we think we are being seen. That's a powerful message too. And so for reenactment, I also try and tie that to experiences that they might have had in everyday life, their everyday life. So I use an example of you have a friend and your friend is talking to you about the latest romantic disaster that she or he has been engaged in. And you know, this person's, this is not the first time you've heard this story. What's going on? How do you help your friend? Now, I don't, I'd say, you know, you as a friend have a different role than a therapist would have. Mm -hmm. But having some understanding of how we are all engaged and constantly reenacting, replaying these scripts in our lives is very powerful. And students recognize it immediately. And so you are presenting psychoanalysis or the psychoanalytic concepts as the originator of these. I mean, all kinds of psychotherapies have really taken on these issues in certain ways, right? right? And, you know, it's interesting just from a political standpoint, they, in our area, they've owned them. You know, right. they say, well, that is, you know, interpersonal therapy, or that right. is acceptance-based therapy, or that. But the originator, I guess I'll say, of all of this, really where it came from, the talking cure. Yeah. So that's where I, I, well, or Anna O, <laughs> exactly. who named it. <laughs> right. But I do go through the various psychotherapies. I tell them that there's basically, you know, there's 250 different branded therapies, but there's basically psychodynamic therapies and cognitive behavioral therapies. But they all originate with talk as a methodology. So that has to be established. So I start with psychoanalysis. And the students, are, they love hearing about Freud. They, I mean, they're very open. Yeah. If I'm not defensive, they're not defensive. Do they question you about, uh, I guess what I would say is, you know, as you pointed out, right, over here at the organization of all analysts, you know, we talk about things like, you know, is there enough scientific rigor? They're not worried about they're that. They're not worried about that. Well, they are. So we... Or uh, did Freud understand women? Or was, was this... We, yeah. I mean, in a course on gender, I might go more deeply into that, but I really want them to understand the setting, where Freud got his ideas about the setting, what what the therapist does and how they, you know, and one of the things therapists do is they write papers and publish papers that have ideas in them. But I'm always 
interested in the materiality. What's going on between two people? And that might be very different in a psychodynamic treatment than in a cognitive behavioral treatment. I mean, some, but you're right. I mean, talk is the technology for all of them. So the students are like, wow, I never thought about that. Like Ford talked about the magic of words, words we can use to influence people. They've been taught, you know, sticks and stones, but no, words are really powerful. So how do you mold that into a scientific, in a way that makes it legible to science? So one thing that we talk about is therapeutic alliance, the working alliance inventory and what research psychologists. So we get very deep into the actual technologies that research psychologists have used and psychoanalysts have used, but it's the stress is, is to demystify. So I don't dumb down. That's another thing. So when I say I demystify, I taught a graduate course that had a lot of undergraduates in it recently. And one of the most powerful frameworks that some of the students took away was the Fairburnian notion of the allure of the um, bad object. Mm -hmm. So especially graduate students in international relations, this was like really powerful because if you start talking about that, then you raise all sorts of questions. Why is it so hard to leave a dysfunctional family? It should be easy, right? I mean, it's so this is a counterintuitive. The other transference and reenactment are intuitive. This is counterintuitive mm-hmm. findings. So David Solani's written brilliantly on this, why women go back to their abusers. Very powerful Fairburnian understanding of object relations. Why are we so drawn to narcissistic leaders? This has been a big question that analysts have been asking for years, and no one's got the answer. I mean, there's, you know, we've got, Kernberg, we've got Zelesnik, Abraham Zelesnik, who was an early group person interested in organizational psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Why are we attracted to people that are no good for us? What motivates our behavior in ways that aren't intuitive? Well, I, I kind of talk about charisma mm-hmm. and the cycle of hope and despair that engagement with a bad object engenders in a Fairburnian sense. I try and help them appreciate that psychoanalysis has origins not just in hysterical women, but in abandoned and deprived young children. Mm-hmm. It's a different story you so can tell. Trauma and right. its effects. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm always trying to demystify, make it apprehensible, tie it to things that work in their lives and without dumbing it down. Because I think actually the fair burning model is very hard to it's it's a difficult model. It's not it ego, superego. It's a, it's a complicated model, but students come away just like really intrigued. So I try and work with their curiosity. And I, you know, students who are in graduate programs in international relations are now interested in, in psychoanalytic writing on world issues. So I think that to my mind, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing. That's yes. an, so the more you get people to think, and I don't really talk that much about the unconscious and, like I said, it ego, superego. I think that's a fascinating model for thinking about human relations in a lot of different ways. I try and make it apprehensible to students. And do students express curiosity about the efficacy of psychoanalytic oh, yeah. treatment? So we talk about problems of measurement. We talk about how one runs RCT to actually produce results. We talk about measures, instruments. So I I take them through the production of knowledge process. 
for psychotherapy research trials. I guess one difficulty is that psychoanalysis has not historically used these kinds of measures. It hasn't, but there's an excellent paper by Jonathan Shedler from 10 years ago, which made the point that we've actually, that there are a lot of studies of the efficacy of psychodynamic treatment. And there are very powerful studies done by Peter Prodigy and Anthony Bateman on efficacy and lasting benefits of mentalization-based therapy. So if you so have, it's there, but not in a rubric sort of way that, say, an insurance company might like to use. Well, there's so much variation on what insurance pays for. Yes. So I'm not the expert. I'm skewed that. toward, you know, shorter, short, cheap, efficacious, and you know, but there are very robust studies that show that psychodynamic treatment works, effects that can last longer than CBT. So. That kind of moves us toward where we're at now. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can speak to the fact that, well, the last couple of years we've gone through this COVID pandemic. We're still essentially in it, but not with the extremists we were. And it initially raised levels of anxiety and depression. I think at some point the CDC reported 41% in this nation, so astronomical. And it is slowly coming back down. But In those early days, it really raised awareness of the importance of mental health care in a way that I think actually as someone who has spent a lot of her career trying to do public education in the service of destigmatizing, getting mental health care, it's been a good thing. However, by necessity, many practitioners, including psychoanalysts, where I think many of my colleagues, myself included, initially felt, oh my goodness, you you can't see someone by telemedicine. You have to be in the room with them. You know, they have to be on the couch facing away um, or, you know, face to face, but certainly must be in the room with them, reading body language and facial expression, et cetera. But interestingly, it's persisted, even though, you know, people have come back and many people feel, and some studies, initial studies have looked at and shown that in fact, it can be just as efficacious to use telemedicine. Some studies have said that now they're, they're probably looking at more CBT based treatments, because that tends to be what people look at. But can you comment as an educator and as an educator of a population that really, especially college students, right, are using social media and Zoom and, and telemedicine, I think, has been particularly appealing to that age group, the way the pandemic has or has not changed public understandings of psychoanalysis? So that's a great and very complicated question. Let me just say from the sort of in the biggest sweep, 30,000 foot view, it's interesting to me that the plight before always in public realm was too many people going to therapists, whining and complaining. That is completely gone. Now the complaint is there's not enough therapists. So I think the pandemic, if it gave us anything, it gave us a window into how the magnitude of the mismatch between providers and need. Pandemic also increased need. I mean, isolation, obviously, was incredibly difficult for a lot of people. Loneliness was already a public health issue. And certainly- but so it's shown a light on all of that in a really helpful way. What are the solutions? So I have been impressed, and I was at the beginning, at how quickly analysts and therapists were able to pivot under duress. 
And as you say, a lot of that has continued. So I'll just raise a couple questions that come to my mind. There were people saying in the early days, it's just the same to do it in the room and on Zoom. And any analyst would, I think, home right in on that assertion of sameness because no two things are ever the same. I know that a lot of people are continuing to do distance treatment and speak very enthusiastically about its possibilities. I guess the question for me, taking a longer view as a historian, is what are the pressures that are pushing people in that way? And is there space to talk about what might be lost and what might be different? Because their therapeutic landscape now is under a lot of pressure from big venture capitalists investing in chatbots, AI-enabled therapy. There's a lot of Uberization of therapy through platforms that offer low-cost, 24-7 access, paying therapists very little. There's pressure from insurance companies. So it's a, it's a very frightening landscape. It's very hard to find help, even with all of this. I mean, I, I would tell you as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, right, I've been watching this creep of years ago, it was life coaching right? People who would go for 48 hours of training from no training to 48 hours of training and be a quote life coach. And people who really needed to be seeing psychologists or psychiatrists were, would see them. And it's only, as you said, picked up speed at a, an alarming rate that, you know, text therapy or, you know, I try to help people understand that the word therapist is a completely unregulated word. Anybody anyone can, can call themselves anybody, a therapist. Well, anybody can call themselves a therapist. Yeah. They can call themselves a therapist if they wish, because there is no license, there's no right. regulation. And I think the public at large, because unfortunately there are a number of disciplines that lead to being particular types of therapists. So different kinds of psychology degrees, PsyD, PhD, PhD in different things, uh, masters of social work, doctorate of social work, and of course psychiatrists. So it was already confusing for the person who is like, who do I, who do I seek out? And it's still confusing. And I think that really makes room for the TikTok therapist and the, no. uh, you know, and, and then you throw in the vast sums being thrown at these new platforms and it's, it's worrisome. So looking at what psychoanalysts have been talking about for the last 50 years, it's, you know, affects in the room, unconscious communication, as you mentioned, sort of body language signals and so on, psychoanalysts providing the setting, not the patient having to provide the setting is a big issue. Yeah. There's a tension because on the one hand, you can make an argument about access. Doing it online makes it so much easier. We and can there go to enough. places. And we're looking at that only becoming worse because right. actually we, a lot of older psychiatrists are right. retiring or dying. Right. And for a couple of decades, Fewer people went into psychiatry. Right. And so we have this, this now people are really trying to actually, it's yeah. become a very competitive residency and so on, but we have decades of to missing, missing I, people yes. who, who are not available. Right. But what is it, if, if we're going to increase access, the holy grail for the venture capitalists and so on is a scalability. Yes. Psychotherapy is not Psychotherapy, as traditionally understood, is not scalable, and that is the problem. So my concern looking at it as a historian is, are psychoanalysts, psychodynamic psychotherapists going to defend what has been the practice 
or at least assess without making rushing to claims that it's the same because it's not that nothing's the same and if you have a body of literature about the importance of being in the room and what goes on between two people in the room when it's a safe, you know, you think of Winnicott's like the 10 criteria, it's a quiet room, you're not interrupted and so on. Are we just going to throw that out? Well, let's be, as they say, intentional about it before just saying, okay, we're going to just join everyone else and go online. I worry about that because psychoanalysis, then what's the, or psych, even psychodynamic treatments, what's the, what's distinguished, what makes it different? So there are people doing good work on this, but there's also, I think, what has struck me is in reading a lot about this, it's very hard to be a psychotherapist of any kind. It's really hard. It's very isolating. And you are the receiver of a huge amount of negative affect. And I think in a way, the move, the sort of ease with which therapists have moved online, I wonder to what degree that's related to how hard the job was and the relaxation of some boundaries. So that burnout is facilitating the expediency and the, and the ability to be in your own space and with your family or whatever you are without your commute, et cetera, et cetera. I just wonder. I mean, I think it's worth asking before just making the leap and leaving behind 120 years or 100 years, however you want to count it, of office-based treatment, even though it's not available to everyone. And to go back to MBT, there are videos online, wonderful videos of Anthony Bayman doing MBT treatment with incarcerated and, and paroled persons with very severe personality disorder diagnoses. So it doesn't just line up that talking therapy is only for privileged people. In practice, of course, that's true. But it's also can be mobilized to, to be used with people who really need help, who will not be helped by a Zoom interview. So I guess I would just Looking at the long term, I would just advise some caution and defend the brand. I'm using branding quote marks yeah, here. You no. can't see that, I mean, but I, defend, I say, defend what you do. Is it your perception as an educator that professionals do not defend the brand? I think psychoanalysts, and people say this a lot, there's a lot of rearranging the deck chairs. You know, there's a lot of concern about say, the average age of the psychoanalyst, about the future of the profession. Psychoanalysis offers such a powerful way of understanding the world from individuals to organizations to nation states. We should use that. It's incredibly useful knowledge. And it's hard-earned. It's, it's a long, as you know, it's a long path. But it's knowledge that's when people kind of can wrap their head around it, of people who aren't analysts, it's very illuminating. You know, it's interesting. I, I think that it, obviously it's been this way a long time. You know, Edward Bernays, you know, Freud's nephew, mm -hmm. creating marketing mm -hmm. out of psychoanalytic concepts, but naming it marketing and PR, and no one knows of the attachment anymore, let's right. just say, or where those concepts really came from. And I think it's your point all of these things developed and then, you know, sort of throughout the parent as the name of really where this all came from. Mm -hmm. So is some of your 
defend the brand idea have to do with reminding people that that these concepts or you know this this negotiation in in international relations is brought to you by no, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to go all Bernays and Madison Avenue on you. But although I think his work is really interesting. I guess what I mean is, I wonder if some of the retreat from the office is determined more than rules about who can be with whom without a mask and so on. I wonder how much of it is kind of a relief from the demands yeah. of office-based practice. Definitely. Yeah, so just take this next steps carefully because I don't think going out and saying psychoanalysis is great is the way to do it. I think actually doing the work, getting out in the community, doing the work. Um, applied analysis. It's, it's, it doesn't even have to be applied. I think of, so I show students the, or have them watch Black psychoanalysts speak. And there's a wonderful vignette in there that Kirkland Vaughn relates where he I'm not going to get it quite right, but there was a call to him or someone about a little black boy was having to be held down by four big police. Not maybe they weren't police, but big grownups, let's say. And what was his comment? His comment was, "What you're holding down is your fantasy of him. Like that's not him. It doesn't. It, take, it can take one adult to hold down a, a you know six or seven year old boy. Such a powerful way of looking. And this is in a school setting." It doesn't have to be called psychoanalytic, but it's such an illuminating comment about the usefulness, the utility, applicability of psychoanalysis beyond the consulting room. Elizabeth Lundbeck, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. It's been really a pleasure. And now for some Freudian quickies. You sent in your questions for an analyst, and I grabbed an analyst with an answer. What do you think psychoanalysis can teach us about sex? Psychoanalysis can teach us so much about sex. It was actually sex that began psychoanalysis and kind of continues it. We talk a lot about relationships and patterns and personalities, but our sexual lives still remain a very central part of this. And I think the most important thing that psychoanalysis can teach us about sex is to be non-judgmental and to be curious. And most importantly, to understand that there is a difference between our inner world, our fantasies, and what we actually do. And that understanding ourselves inwardly is extremely important and helpful for acting responsibly and constructively, you know, in the real world. What can psychoanalysis teach us about sex? A lot of things. The first thing I would say is letting go. I'll keep it simple like that, but psychoanalysis is a, is a process of letting go, and you can think sex is also a process of letting go. If you have a question, really any question for a psychoanalyst, please send it to APSAPodcast at gmail.com and we will try to feature it in a future Freudian quickie. For more information about the American Psychoanalytic Association, go to www.apsa.org. Till next time. Thank you for listening in today. 
here at Psychoanalysis and You, and we at the American Psychoanalytic Institute hope to introduce you to the many ways psychoanalytic thought affects the world around us, and especially you. Please leave any comments and requests for us at APSAPodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with a friend or colleague. And we will be back next month with another episode of Psychoanalysis and You.